Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales. With ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great, this is Kevin Brown, your voice of Cancellus Structure Titanium in Times of Grit Blast. And yes, that is a clue as to our amazing guest today. I hope you are having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. So we're finished up with our Mr. Rogers series. Uh, I, I felt like last week we did open up the door on what I consider to be the most important character trait of a medical device rep. You remember what it was? It was humility, a word you don't hear a lot in sales training or it's not the most exciting word in the world. Uh, What's the definition? A modest or low view of one's importance. Yeah, that's exciting. You'll spend thousands of dollars to go to a meeting to hear about that, right? Wrong, but it's so important, and I think that word deserves more than one episode. So today, we're going to unpack it a little bit more, and we're going to apply it to the relationship side of the device tripod. Do you remember what that is? That's the sales aspect of this job, the technical aspect of it. And then lastly, the relational. Those are the three most important parts of this job. So we're going to apply humility to all three of those over the next coming weeks and and see what we got. So today, you're going to want to hang around because we have an amazing interview with Aaron Hoffman today. And you're thinking to yourself, well, you had Aaron Hoffman on last week. Well, this is her father, orthopedic surgeon icon from Utah. Uh, I was able to bundle and save and get Aaron and and Aaron on the show back-to-back, and you and I are the beneficiary. So let's unpack humility, and let's use a contemporary application, starting with a break room I was in just the other day. I'm sitting there at lunchtime, and a nurse is in there. It's just me and her, and then she starts engaging me with some of the things that are going on in the public square right now on TV and in social media. And I shared with her that I have cut a lot of that stuff out. I've deleted Facebook off my phone right now, a minimal presence on Twitter, just because there's too many people that are incited against each other. There's no dialogue. It's just people yelling at each other. And I know that for me, that is not what I need before I go to work, is to be incited about anything. So then she goes on to say, well, I still participate in all those things. And I felt, warning, warning. And sure enough, like on cue, another nurse walks into the break room, offers up a different opinion, and then they're going at it. So I did what every smart rep would do in that situation. I looked at my phone. Oh, I've got to take this call. And I left. So let's dwell on that for a second. One thing that I think we can all agree on is that temperatures are high right now, right? So what is our... You know, they say for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So what is our reaction in this situation if people are incited? Well, you know what? I'm not going there. I am not going there. I'm not participating in it because it's not really an exchange of information. It's people just throwing grenades at each other. I checked my contract this morning with Zimmer, and I know it's a surprise, but I get no additional commissions for being right. So... I don't think that as a guest in the hospital that my opinion means anything other than an opportunity to potentially alienate myself from somebody who doesn't feel the way I do 
or is incited already, and then I say something to trigger them. That's not helpful at all. These relationships are so important to me that I'm not going to let anything like this stuff get in the way of that. It's too important to me. So if I see that the conversation is going there and people are throwing out their opinions on this thing or that thing, then humility comes in and says, you know what? Nobody truly cares about your opinion, and there's no benefit to being right. So I just take the low road and just ask open-ended questions, but not leading questions, and stay out of it. And I think that is the place to be, again, as a guest in the hospital. The opposite of humility, pride and conceit, wants to offer up an opinion and wants everybody to know what we think on any particular issue. Can't go there. Trust me. That quiet scrub tech over in the corner of the room that you think's not listening just heard your opinion, doesn't feel the same way you do, and now there's a wedge between you and that scrub tech, and you need these people. Just like a surgeon works within the context of a team, we work in the context of the team, and we need everybody on our side because we need people to watch our backs. Hey, your case got changed from a right to a left, or you got bumped. There was an instrument, I think, that was missing out of your tray this morning. We just can't do anything that that compromises a good relationship with everyone in that hospital, from the moment we drive in and the receiving people to the central sterile people all across the board. So with the surgeon, we're having dinner. Those are moments when you can gingerly talk about these things. But again, being careful not to lead with it, you need to know where your customer is. And then if you're in agreement, then you can have that conversation. I've seen dinners with surgeons where a rep actually got in an argument with them over something political. And I'm like, what were you thinking? What are you thinking? This job is not about your opinion. Sales is not about your opinion. It's about helping, right? And helping comes most optimally from a posture of humility. So let's wrap this up because I want to get to Dr. Hoffman. I really enjoyed talking with him. In these incited times, in these divisive times, we need to be opposite. We need to be not incited. We need to be steady. And we need to be nonpartisan in everything that we do in that hospital. Absolutely nonpartisan. So we can facilitate conversation, but we are not there to offer up our opinions on things that could in any way be construed as divisive, right? So humility, let's take a modest or low view of one's importance and take that into the OR, into the break rooms, into every department of those hospitals this coming week. Good stuff? Well, what's really good stuff is a conversation with, again, an icon in the orthopedic device industry. This gentleman is truly a man in full and has contributed so much to the joint reconstruction space. Please welcome to Device Nation. Dr. Aaron Hoffman. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here this morning. Dr. Hoffman, you have done so much over your career. I'd like to to go back, though, in time and just kind of see where it all started. Walk me through your your path into medicine and then how you eventually got into orthopedics. I started my orthopedic career at the university in 1981. But uh, prior to that, I I, uh, finished my medical school in Dallas. I did my orthopedic training there and I guess maybe where I had my real training was where I grew up on the farm and 
we had to do so many mechanical things. I had to learn how to weld and fix engines and um, do uh, carpentry things, woodworking things. It's just kind of all flowed together uh, toward the orthopedics, really. I didn't know it at the time, but all those things uh, come into play quite uh, readily in orthopedics, which is a very physical, mechanical uh, technical skills that we hone every day. So when did you decide, you know, you get out into practice and when did you decide, you know, I, I'm not content just to take care of patients and do that, which is a, certainly a noble calling, but I want to invent things. I, I want to, to create. Yeah. I've always wanted to do things, uh, better if that were possible. And so, a friend of mine um, in San Francisco has a great saying. He said, you know, if you uh, you can't always do things by the book if you want to be in the book. Oh, that's good. Which is a which is a great saying. So, uh, you know, I never, always wanted to look for a better way of doing things, which I was uh, which I, I have done in many different ways. So. Well, let's let's walk down that very path for just a second uh, of you making things better. Uh, 1973, a Medtronic rep by the name of Albert Butel founded a little pacemaker company that we uh, we know by Intermedics, and uh, they were in Texas. They would go on to add dental implants and orthopedics to the roster. And I'm just curious how you connected with them. Was that your schooling in Texas, or uh, how did you uh, how did you link arms with them? Um, actually I had some connections with some of the Howmedica guys, which is now that company, as you know, is striker, but I had some friends that were in that business and I was doing some workshops back in the early eighties. And uh, those guys, some of those guys, a couple of those guys went to intermedics and were looking for somebody, uh, at that point in time to work on a knee. So they had already contacted Larry door, who was, working on a hip and had introduced a hip, the APR hip, which was a very successful anatomic uh, solution that was very novel and unique. And they were looking for someone to do a knee also. Um, I think actually I was their third choice. I was uh, only four years out of residency, I think. And so the guys they asked just laughed at them and said, you know, you're just such a tiny little company. I think at the time they were they had revenue of $6 million and like, I'm not going to waste my time working on this little company. So fortunately for me, they said uh, two of the guys who became very good friends um, said no. And they asked me and I said, yes. And so that I was assigned two engineers to work on this thing. And they actually let me name it the natural knee. So I remember staying up late one night, writing names down on a piece of pad on a pad uh, uh, with one of the marketing people just coming up with every name. And at that time, you know, it was very uh, common to have three letters, you know, the PCA, the ACG, the, the ABC or whatever it was. So we weren't going to have something that had three letters. So we came up with the natural name. And so that sort of spawned a primary knee, subsequently a revision knee, a uni knee, and then the natural hip followed after that. So, so obviously they liked the name because there was a uh, natural high tibial osteotomy jig, and that was actually the, one of the first things I ever invented and 
patented uh, way before I was thinking about knee design. So, and that was also uh, a successful thing that the company uh, marketed. It was a, a, basically a miter box type of thing. Instead of doing freehand osteotomies of the proximal tibia, you could actually put a jig on it and pick your pick your degree of correction, whether it was six degrees, eight degrees, ten degrees, whatever, instead of just eyeballing like uh, had been done for so many years. Was the natural knee a clean sheet design for you, or were you uh, kind of building on some principles of a system you were using at that time? Or? Uh, you know, I was working with Halmenica, now Straker, and I was helping with some of their workshops, and so I actually got a lot of feedback from surgeons, like, why did they do this? Why didn't they do that? And and so those ideas were sort of collected, uh, uh, including the idea of having an asymmetric tibial faceplate, which nobody had and which actually got patented uh, back then. So unfortunately, the unfortunate thing about asymmetry is that you double your inventory, but it was a novel idea at the time and it became quite successful. So that meant asymmetric uh, um, polyethylene at the time it was a reversible asymmetric base plate so you didn't double your inventory on the base plate but you did have to have left and right polyethylene inserts so, so that was quite a novel thing as part of the natural knee which helped promote it that made so much sense to me at the time i remember uh, dr insall was real adamant about that medial posterior coverage and uh, not having to oversize as you externally rotate the tibia, uh, that just made a lot of sense. So, well well done on that. Uh, I will tell you this, as, as somebody that at that particular time was working for Zimmer, that many a surgeon would not even consider looking at my stuff uh, that was using intermedics at that time because of one instrument. You want to guess what that is? I have to guess maybe the saw capture is... A fairly novel addition, but I'm um, I can't think of what else it might be. It was that tibial cutter. I mean, at that time, we didn't have anything like that. My competitors didn't have anything like that, and and now everybody's tibial cutter. You drill in a zero hole, and you can go up and down. Uh, I'd never seen that before until yeah. the natural knee. Um, so that was that was kind of a unique piece that you had there. We spent a lot of money trying to make customs for that uh, yeah. until we ended up joining joining hands with y'all. I, I think the ability to make things like that came from the fact that two young, inexperienced engineers were assigned to me, but they had such great ideas, including a, a guy by the name of Joe Scraba, who is still uh, working in Austin, Texas. But these guys were assigned to me, and they would come down to come over to Utah. And in fact, I remember one weekend we actually went down to Lake Powell on my houseboat. We spent all weekend just thinking up crazy ideas <laughs> of things that nobody else had. And they would go back, and they could make a prototype. And you know, it was a different. You know, now we have uh, generated uh, prototypes, uh, 3D printing kind of thing. It was like the first generation of 3D printing where a laser would cut out on a piece of paper a shape and then it would do the next size and the next size. And these things were all glued together. So you would have what almost looked like a laminated glue model, but they could crank these things out in a matter of a few days and come back and say, what do you think of this? So you actually had something you could put in your hand and something you could play with and, and to be able to tweak. So 
that whole project took a little over a year, and we had a whole knee system, which, you know, the last knee system I worked on took four years from beginning to end. And, it's, and in fact, they just recently released the revision version. I think it's been seven years later. So, you know, dealing with small companies and fewer number of people definitely is makes it a lot more fun and uh, responsive to needs like instruments. So um, I, I think that that concept has carried forward with a lot of other small companies. In 2001, I, I was reading just this morning, uh, you, you produced a 12-year follow-up to your uh, cementless knees. So we're looking at 31 years or so now um, on the natural knee. Uh, and cementless seems to be making the rounds again. And uh, I just want to see if you had any thoughts on the technology uh, here in 2020. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, certainly reasonable. You know, we can get the cost down. It's oh, it was always the cost, and it, you know, I think cementless knees uh, 30 years ago would have really taken off if the difference between the cost of a cemented knee and a cementless knee was only about a thousand dollars, which is the cost of the cement and the mixing bowls and injectors or whatever cement technique is used. Um, so I think if if the cost difference wouldn't have been so great, I think it'd have been much more. Uh, successful was definitely more successful in Europe and continues to be uh, more successful, I think, in Europe. So even though, like, if you were to go to the Zimmer website, you cannot find the natural knee on it. They took it off the website uh, several years ago, uh, even though there's still this last year, they sold 60,000 natural knees in Europe. Now, I can talk about the natural knee because I get zero royalties or uh, affiliation with that at this point point in time so unfortunately when the the uh, department of justice came in uh, all contracts were closed and including uh, my contract with the natural knee which is probably a good thing um but they've continued to make it and they've continued to sell it in a year very successfully especially the cementless version of it so, so that knee has been a favorite i still have surgeons send me x-rays you know look at i've had this patient 25 years later came back and or 30 years now, at this point in time, the first one was uh, implanted in October of 1985. So, so when you get old, you have great long-term memory. But you know, just don't ask me who I operate on yesterday because I wouldn't <laughs> be able to come up with their with their, with their names. So, you know, I have a few surgeons that listen to this podcast. Is there any uh, tips or tricks that you can share with them that that you have found over the years makes that? Uh, that that porous technology a little bit more viable long term. Anything that makes it better uh, in your hands? Yeah. So there's there's a there's about five different things. You know, it, a cementless knee is not a cemented knee. It's different technique. It's different surgical technique. It definitely requires, you know, not being quite so quick to accept an imperfect cut. And so I always I always tell every surgeon, yeah, uh, what is the most important uh, when we ask what the most important instrument in the operating room is, that's the saw blade, because you have to have the correct thickness of the blade to go through the slot. Or, you know, some surgeons still do freehand cuts over an open block, which is, if you're taught to do that, uh, I think that can be very successful as well. But if you're using the wrong blade, if you're using a cheap blade, if you're using one that heats up the bone and cooks the bone, it's not going to work. If you have an imperfect cut, it's not going to work if... Um, and the, one of the main things that we did 
even as an award-winning paper that we did, and that's the use of um, autographed bone slurry on the cut surfaces, which we typically mill from the underside of the tibia. So, you know, the the proximal tibia is the challenge, and since that is 70% space or marrow, uh, you basically have to rebuild that subchondral plate. And so putting a slurry of bone, which we've shown with tetracycline labeling, et cetera, and implant retrievals, that that's actually alive. So you're putting live bone fertilizer almost across the surface of the tibia, and that just makes it work so much better. It actually improves the ingrowth by 68%, I think, was the number from a paper that we wrote years ago. So it definitely jump starts it, you know. Some people would still advocate washing the proximal tibia, pulsing it, and then so you wash all the good stuff out, and then you uh, put a porous implant on top of it, and people wonder why it doesn't work. So it's a, it's definitely a biologic operation as opposed to just throwing some cement on there that's going to, you know, definitely save an inappropriate, inappropriate uh, uneven type of cut. So you have to be more precise with cementless fixation. So I think that's what in which which draws and attracts surgeons to that technique because it is takes you to a higher level definitely instead of instead of being a rough carpenter it turns you into a finished carpenter that's different sure. different between you know porous i think and cement which um doesn't really slow you down you know you just got to follow those basic steps and basic principles how did you make that slurry? Did you just use uh, an acetabu reamer, a real small one, and, and uh, grind up the back of your tibial cut, or how, what's the trick? No, so the way we did it, we always used the patella planer, so the, we just grab the wafer, flip it upside down, and put put the clamp on the patella clamp, and then the patella reamer would actually make the best slurry, just a very fine slurry of cancellous bone, and that's... Okay. Uh, and, and actually, when we were using cementless patellas, which I think can still be very successful, most of those we put in are still going. Um, but what we would do on the patella, since it had, you had the reamer in place, you just put the reamer in reverse at the last few steps, and it would smear uh, that bone away. And so with our implant retrieval, which we have uh, up to 18 years of retrieval, actually it's 20, the last one was 20 four years after implantation. So we have a series of patients that we uh, got their implants back, but the best end growth turns out was under the patella because you could really put that slurry of bone uh, in place. I want to talk about that patella planer for a minute because a lot of uh, surgeons I've seen, they, they buy into the porous knee construct, but when it comes to the patella, uh, they still want to uh, cement it, and I remember the the planer on your set allowing you to inset the porous patella, and that made a lot of sense to me because that addressed, I think what was happening up to that point was just edge wear on the patellas, and then now you, once it breaks through that plastic, you got metal on metal and a catastrophic failure. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it uh, makes sense these days to cement the patella, or if you if you inset it, there's no issue. Just uh, just get it below that uh, get it below that that level. Yeah, so I think that can be successful. And so uh, I know there are companies working on an inset type of very similar to the natural knee patella that's uh, 
Rob Plaster, who was actually my first fellow in 1989, is adamant about Smetlis and, and so we both looked at our series years and years later, and the first the first metalback patella had an edge thickness of polyethylene of 1.6 millimeters. That's not very much. And so then they changed that design because there were some edge wearing uh, of that initial patella. But uh, the one that was we replaced that actually had three millimeters edge polyethylene. And I've actually never seen uh, hardly any of those that have worn through, even with 20-year uh, follow-up on that version of the metal back patellas hmm. but as you know metal back patella just became unfavorable and so nobody's pushed that um, and i still cement my patellas now because i don't have a good metal back patella hopefully by the end of the year rob plaster will finish his design and i'll i'll have something that i could actually use as a metal back patella but so many meetings back at that time frame for me it was the PS guys battling it out with the CR guys. And uh, when I first saw an ultra congruent surface on that intermedic set, it was just a complete paradigm shift for me. Uh, you know, now a kind of a deep dish surface uh, for a CR femur is, is kind of ubiquitous. Walk me through how that came to be. That was a, a, you know, there's not many things in life you say, I actually came up with this idea. So that's one thing that I will claim. And it was in 1991, I implanted the first ultra congruent as a custom. So I went to those same two engineers I was talking about and saying, look, I got a problem patient. I had a, a patient with uh, uh, some kind of tremor, some kind of uh, seizure disorder, and he keeps trying to dislocate his knee. And at that time, I'd used the thickest insert, the thickest femur, the thickest tibia insert. So it's like I, I didn't have any more options unless I was going to take everything out and just put a hinge in. So they came up with the first ultra-congruent insert. I still have a model of it from 1990, what it looked like in one of those paper uh, models I was talking about that's, that was that version of 3D printing at the time. So that was inserted uh, and solved the patient's uh, problems who, you know, had just severe uncontrolled Parkinson's was his problem. So he stopped dislocating his knees. So after that, it's like, well, why don't we just make this thing as a standard thing, which happened. And um, I remember submitting the paper and, uh, you know, the guys that are PS guys don't like to hear anybody else's uh, design like an ultra congruent revert referred to as posterior stabilizing. So, but that's what that's the term analogy that I used in the paper, and I got rejected I think seven times because it was being reviewed by PS guys. And finally, we just changed the wording, stopped using posterior stabilizing because that was their word. I couldn't take their word away from them, so we called it something else, maybe just deep dish or something, and. Um, and so that was how that paper finally got published. But since that time, you know, Smith and Nephew came out with one. And and I remember one of the uh, Stryker engineers uh, had dinner with me years later and, and said, you know, I just want to thank you for my promotion. So what are you talking about? So, well, I was assigned to make something like an ultra congruent for uh, the striker knee and uh, he was assigned that project. And he said, then I got a promotion and actually went into marketing and, so, unfortunately, they didn't do a great job of copying it, but uh, they do have something that has a, a built-up anterior lip that that helps. Uh, in fact, I've got a patient. 
ironically, I have a patient this Tuesday that I'm taking out standard poly and putting in their version of the ultra congruent because I don't want to take everything out, but they have something that will help uh, solve that problem. A patient that's lost his posterior cruciate ligament. A question that came up in my mind as you were talking is the whole spine cam helping kick it into rollback. How, how do you answer that person, you know, the absence of that mechanism to kind of facilitate rollback? Yeah, that, those are great questions. So that, uh, you know, from a scientific standpoint, there's data behind it. So Seth Greenwald in his Cleveland lab uh, basically did, uh, uh, Paul Postek uh, did the study as a graduate student and basically did some posterior pressure uh, in vitro and found that it takes 350 pounds of pressure to overcome that anterior lip, which is almost the same as a post. And so uh, 350 pounds of pressure is what an intact PCL can handle. So so there's, there's good scientific uh, evidence behind it. And then ironically, uh, people that have tried it, you know, if they have a PS backup, they're willing to try it. If they don't have a post to back it up, they would probably never try it. So I remember a friend of mine in Atlanta was doing his first ultra congruent and I called him up the night before and he's a PS guy. And I said, don't do it. I'm just calling you to tell you not to do it. And he said, what are you talking about? He says, because if you do one, you're just going to want to do another one and another one and another one. And that's exactly what happened. He thought it was the best thing since uh, sliced bread because it was so simple, you don't have to cut the box out, and it provides the same kind of stability. And so sure. I've heard that from many, many surgeons. Like, why didn't you tell me about this thing? It's so easy. It's like, <laughs> I've been trying to tell you, but you just weren't listening. You, you know, you're just a PS guy, and just, you know, you had the blinders on. But uh, And that's happened so many times. Uh, I remember when the natural knee was introduced in France, they wouldn't have anything to do with the ultra-congruent until the PS was introduced. So there was a PS natural knee. So they sent the PS knee to France because they demanded to have a post. And so once it was there, after about a year and a half, they sent all the PS instruments back, and all they wanted was ultra-congruent instruments and ultra-congruent instruments. It was so much easier. So I worked with a gentleman for years from Pennsylvania, and uh, I saw many an ultra-congruent go in. And, and this is anecdotal, right? But it was just so slick, so easy, and so stable. And just uh, my hat's off to you on that. A great, great design work. Speaking of design work, 19 patents. What's the secret to getting these things over the finish line, doctor? I, I, it's, I, I feel like I deal with the mafia, and if I invented something that didn't exist, they're going to reject it three times just to get a resubmit. Uh, do I just need to put my examiner on the Christmas card list? Uh, what's, what's the trick? There's no secret sauce necessarily except just being persistent. Uh, and have, and I had a great uh, patent attorney who passed away several years ago, but his, his yeah. nephew has taken over and is just as good. Um, but having a great patent attorney really helps uh, in getting that provisional patent in, which is can be a one-page thing, and then you have a whole year to write it up. But basically, if you have a provisional patent, it puts a stake in the ground. It's not that expensive, and then you, got, then you have time to sort of fine-tune uh, that patent, so – um, certainly documenting where you did it and how you did it and what resources were used. So uh, I did have the university after 
all those years come back and say, wait a minute, uh, aren't those our patents? And so that took another year and a half of legalizing uh, what I was doing and documenting where it was done and whose electricity was I using when the lights were on when I was thinking about that. So, But uh, somebody always wants to have, you know, if there's money involved, it just all of a sudden people come out of the woodwork and say, wait a minute, isn't that, shouldn't I have that also? So before we get away completely, uh, from the intermedics years, then they, they changed their name to Center Poles. Solzer got them, then Zimmer got them. Uh, out of that whole time period and all the products that came out of that just wonderfully creative period, is there any one thing that you you look back on and go, that was just awesome? That That's the thing that uh, uh, I can really hang my hat on. Yeah, I'd have to say probably the most clever thing was the high tibia osteotomy jig, even though yeah, you can hardly find anybody that will do a high tibial osteotomy. My brother-in-law needed one, and I couldn't find anybody in California that would do it. So he actually came out to Utah, and I did a high tibial osteotomy on him. But it's sort of a lost art. They don't teach it in residency training or fellowship training uh, hardly anymore. So uh, unfortunately, that's that, that's a lost thing. But it was probably the most clever thing and the simplest thing that I I worked on. I worked on lots of different things. Well, educate me, sir. I mean, me coming up through this business, I was always uh, told at the meetings that, you know, you need to do a uni because they're just easier to convert to a total than an HTO. Is, is there truth to that? Or was it just um, lack of the knowing the tricks? Or Well, just like, look, Smetless Knees have its own set of uh, tricks. That I think uni compartment, which uh, I've continued to use, has its own set of tricks. In fact, uh, Chris Peltz, who's uh, up at the University University of Utah, just got my series of unit compartments published, and I think it's like 14-year follow-up. He looked at both the cement lists and the cemented unis, medial, lateral. So, uh, you know, after 14 years, I think there was 10 or 12% that fell out. You know, it's always the progression of disease that's unpredictable. You don't know when the opposite compartment or the patellofemoral joint is going to uh, fail. And so that's where a lot of the revisions uh, happen is is a progression of disease of other compartments. I think it's a reasonable thing for the – but it's, I, I personally find it very uh, a very narrow indication uh, so mm-hmm. for me, the other compartments in there have to be absolutely pristine. And, you know, you always have that patient that wants a uni and you get in there and it's like, whoa, that other compartment just looking like it's not going to last very long. And when the patient wakes up to having a total knee and, and I and I always schedule them for to- total versus uni um, in case we find that. But 95 percent of the time, we're still going to do a uni if the patient wants a uni. But, so I think I think there's a place for it. I'm I just not doing that many of them compared to the number of total knees I do. I think it's most predictable and, um, you know, having highly cross-linked polyethylene or vitamin E poly is important, which you get in most knee systems and not all uni compartments have really caught up and having, you know, the best poly uh, available. So that's another consideration on a younger person that is. Older person, I think, has one compartment disease is still a reasonable uh, thing to, to do. I, I remember a time when people were considering the bicomp 
and just still leaving one of those compartments, uh, leaving that lateral compartment alone, but I haven't seen much of that going on anymore. I have a few patients where I've done that on, but it's, uh, you know, part of the problem is it all comes down to dollars and cents. You know, the unit compartments that are sold cost as much as a total knee. So it's like, is it going to be as good as a total knee? Why are you charging the same amount? And then if you do two compartments, that's twice as much. So that could be $10,000, dollars $12,000 in parts if you replace two compartments. So it's just, I can't, I just really, I can't do that to my hospital. I'm in charge of trying to cost contain uh, what's happening and, and trying to improve efficiency in our hospital, kind of like what we did with Operation Walk and bringing those same thoughts into our hospital that we did with Operation Walk. Well, that's a nice segue, Doctor. Uh, Operation Walk, a nonprofit volunteer medical service, uh, volunteer organization that you were heavily involved with with Dr. Doerr. Tell me about how that started, uh, its mission, and where you're going with that. Yeah, Dr. Doerr is the, is the OpWalk hero. In fact, so he, he operated on a woman who her and her husband started Operation Smile, and that's where the connection is to Operation Smile. And so, you know, they're, I think they have a $20 million a year budget at least now for Operation Smile. And uh, Trevor McGee, actually, who was one of my uh, fellows, is their son, and I trained him, and he was my partner for a few years and has uh, gone to be a hospital employee at the same institution I work at. But so that's really where that idea came from, you know, that volunteer organization traveling around. It's a little more intensive doing joint replacement than doing cleft pallets because the equipment that's needed. But uh, so Larry Door started that uh, 20, over 25 years ago, I think now. And so we've had our Operation Walk Utah going for almost 10 years. And we've sort of honed in on El Salvador. I like going to someplace, you know, I don't want to travel halfway around the world when there are people in need so cl much closer by. And we've sort of collected uh, a lot of bilingual uh, nurses or anesthesiologists, uh, uh, surgeons that help us down in El Salvador. And so we've gone back to the same place uh, year after year. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to go to El Salvador this year, we called the week before last, and they had 110 COVID-19 patients in the hospital. So oh, wow. it's kind of a hot spot right now. And the new president of the company, who's very progressive, he's uh, in his 40s, basically, uh, the first thing he did when this thing broke out is he closed the borders of the country to try to limit the spread. So hopefully they will get it under control. But haven't been able to go back. We missed our spring trip, and our next trip is in September. I'm hoping they get things under control so we can go back in September. But So we're doing 100 uh, surgeries a year at El Salvador, and we have brought residents up to spend time with us so that we have feet on the ground back there. Uh, we've had two different residents that, comes, that have come and spend time with us. Uh, so that we can contact them and they pre-screen the patient. So it really has streamlined our ability to do things down in El Salvador. I had a wonderful conversation with your wonderful daughter last week, uh, Aaron, and she was sharing with me how uh, your your interaction with uh, Dr. Doerr on Operation Walk led to TJO. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about, uh, about that, about uh, the company and and what your why was in starting it. 
Yeah. So, you know, we talked about the Department of Justice for a minute. Uh, and so when the Department of Justice came in 10 years ago, they kind of shut down all the donations from orthopedic companies. They, it was sort of like we're giving surgeons something of value and we can't do that. And it violates Stark laws and it just went on and on. So there was a two year period where we could not get implants. So Dr. Dorr and I said, why don't we, you know, we know where they're made and how they're made. Why don't we just start our own company? Um, with the idea that we could give back at least one for every 10 that was sold in the U.S., and that is the source of our implants today, both hips and knees. And uh, so that's been a great resource that uh, that we've sort of taken control of where it was out of our control before. So so Total Joint was started 10 years ago. I'm, I have to stay an arm's length away from that just because of it current uh, contract that I have with Zimmer on the knee side, um, but I am um, um, on, a, on a board that helps supervise some of that, so it keeps me, keeps me out of trouble. So, so basically, that's why um, Aaron is basically running the show. I have no investment in total joint orthopedics, nor does any other surgeon, which uh, was, was always a problem in the beginning, so we all divested ourselves of ownership of TJO, but we are obviously all big supporters of that, and I think that they have. I think I just saw some numbers, um, number of implants that were done, and I think it's over sixteen thousand knees have been uh, implanted uh, in that short period of time. So it might even be more than that. But a lot of those implants now, the more that get done in this country, the more that get donated. So a lot of those implants have been put in in Cuba and uh, well, actually all around the world, uh, some in Vietnam, actually, and a lot of them in Central America. So it's a, it's a great uh, triangle of, of uh, support that we get from Total Joint Orthopedics and getting us implants and, and also teaching us how to be efficient. So, you know, as you know, when you go to Operation Walk, everything, including a paperclip, has to be provided, Band-Aids, aspirin. And so you have to go and be lean and mean. And so how we did that is exactly how we do it in my hospital. So we don't waste product. We don't waste steps. We, you know, not every hospital uses packs, you know, knee packs, hip packs, where you have 90% of what you're going to use is in a pack. And so the packs cost $95. I still have one of my hospitals. I can't convince them to use the pack system. And they spend the first 45 minutes of the operation opening things, one thing at a time, which increases risk of contamination. But, but we now have specialized packs that we take on Operation Walk, which is the same ones we're using in our hospitals. I have seen that so many times over my career, going into an OR and watching them just open a million things. And and I always throw it out there just because, uh, I guess, selling is helping. And I was like, have y'all considered getting a pack that just has all this in it? And uh, I always just get a stare, and they just keep doing it. So it, it is, it is kind of interesting to watch because uh, it doesn't seem very efficient at all. So... What's got you occupied these days, doctor? I, I had a doctor at the at a scrub sink this morning who was more my age, and he uh, he mentioned restaurant business with you. So I thought I'd ask you about that. Just just find out what's <laughs> occupying your time. 
Yeah, I can't. Uh, I did uh, get in the restaurant business 25 years ago, so I get bored easily. So I've just never been satisfied. You know, you, you asked initially about just doing orthopedics and, you know, doing it by the book and always doing it by the book. It's just like I've always looked for another outlet to entertain myself. So so I've since opened a, uh, the restaurant has been open for 25 years. I have a bar and grill that's been open for uh, over 20 years. Uh, I've always, if I'm not happy if I'm not having a construction prog- uh, pro- program going on. So I have at least two of those going on right now. So, you know, I spend my Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays doing my day job. I jokingly call it. And, I can usually squeeze in as much work as most people do in five days so that I do in three days. and then I, But basically, I still have a couple of days a week to do crazy things that I'm involved with. Uh, still new ideas, still publishing. Um, we're working on two different papers. We recently got papers ex- uh, accepted on stem extensions for cementless knees, for example. That just got published and and. Um, Chris Pelt, I mentioned, just wrote up our uni compartment experience. So uh, I have a fellow that that's uh, working in New Albany with the Lombardi Group there. That's working on a paper on our uh, HD stem that uh, TJO makes, um, and has written one paper on it. And is really writing uh, an extension on that same uh, paper that's been asked for by the by the journal. So. Lots of still still doing academic stuff, still doing some bench work, uh, implant retrieval work. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a shortage of things to do. Um, and I still have, like I said, I still have two construction projects. I just was riding my bike up there this morning to check and see if they put the third level of, of uh, steel up yet that they were welding in place yesterday. So... Uh, those are those are fun things. I, I have to keep my fingers in some kind of construction project. If it's uh, and and I'm still training fellows, so you know, getting back to orthopedics. So I have a fellow starting um, this August. I have another one starting. So this really makes you feel old. So uh, Dr. Koch was my fellow. He's in Oklahoma City. Was my fellow 22 years ago. His son is going to be my fellow starting in a year. So you're really feeling old when you start training your fellows, children, which is crazy. Uh, three years ago, or actually it was four years ago. I trained someone that was a resident mate of mine. His son went through orthopedics and uh, he was my fellow. So when you're training your friend's children, that's uh, like I said, it's, I don't know if it's time to quit or just time to keep going, but, I don't have any intention of slowing down. Well, speaking of construction projects, that's basically what this this podcast is, is uh, just working with other reps and, and helping them to get better at this business and to do better by the, the surgeons they cover and the staff and the patients. And so it's, a, it's more of a human construction project, and uh, uh, I'm learning from it just as much as they are. I wanted to see if you had any advice to them. You've worked with many a rep over the years. Uh, just what suggestions you have, what separates the good from the great, and what uh, what do they really need to, to major on? Yes. So you, I, I listened to your podcast last week, and you know some of the points that you made, I couldn't agree with more. I mean, basically, the rep that is overprepared, just in case. It's like I have been burned so many times over the last 35 years by 
someone that forgot to bring the the diameter head I needed or the taper I needed or the poly insert and and, and it's then it just continues to happen I had a case uh, within the last 12 months uh, you know there's the uh, that had the and then they had just regular well they have different poly inserts and so guess what I was doing the you know, just a simple poly change, which is never just a simple poly change, but it's it's the version or was the brought in? It was the wrong version, and so I had to whittle on the polyethylene in the middle of surgery because I was at an outlying hospital uh, doing this surgery, and the patient's on the table, but the wrong poly. Somebody didn't do their research to find out exactly what version of that knee it was, and so the advice is. Be prepared for everything, every possible scenario, and uh, that surgeon is going to love that rep forever if that's the case. I mean, just saving their butt is your know, is the mission, I think, of that rep. Because why else are you not? Why else are you there if it weren't for just making sure everything is smooth? So, I remember I, I talked to a retired Zimmer distributor from california he's retired in utah and he said when i go into the operating room the only thing that surgeon has to think about is doing the operation i will take care of everything else you don't have to think about is that instrument there is that implant there is that part there so he said that's my job and that was a those that was great advice that he was sharing so i'll, I'll share it with you be prepared for everything. Yeah, I think I remember saying something that to the to the point of when you get in this mindset where you say, "Okay, I got this. Just another routine, whatever." Trouble is right around the corner. Well, I've been doing this for thirty five years, and it's like you don't stop learning. I mean, every operation is a little bit different, and I learn something every time I operate—a different little trick, a different twist. Uh, watching other people operate, you know, so with advent of all this video surgery and youtube stuff i mean there's lots of things you can watch and little tricks you can pick up and again every time i every time i've been operating with somebody else it's like wow i'm gonna i'm gonna try that because that's a quick little trick i can you know put into my uh, my own surgical technique so we all we, we never stop learning is the is the message that's a great Closing thought, Doctor. I just wanted to to thank you for all the contributions you've made to the joint reconstruction space that I've worked in for my entire life. And um, just as a rep, I just wanted you to to hear that I have truly, truly enjoyed selling your ideas, and uh, and I am sincerely thankful that you came on the show to share your life with uh, with my audience and just share your story. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me, and uh, good luck with. I think this podcast thing you have is a fantastic idea. Coming from you, sir, that just made my year. So I, I appreciate that. All right, spread the word. We have all just spent forty-five minutes sitting at the feet of greatness. I mean, that was just unbelievable. One thing that really inspired me about Dr. Hoffman is that you know it's just not about him. I think about how many lives he's touched with what he's done. The missions arm, the inventions that he's done, both on the instrument and the implant side, and you know the fellows that he's touched in their lives, and uh, his own company, and the restaurant business, and just so many things outside of that OR 
uh, and his reach. And for somebody with that resume to say that he is still learning, how much more should we be challenged, and I'm saying me as well, uh, to be ever learning, ever growing, and always open to opportunities to get better at this thing? I really loved his advice about being overprepared, and our goal is just to keep our surgeons out of trouble. It makes me want to go down and go down to the OR right now and break down all of my instruments just to make sure that everything's complete and that nothing's going to go wrong this week. Very inspirational. Look, I'm talking to the best of the best here, the people that listen to this show, and you just heard the best of the best say he is still seeking better. He is still straining towards what is ahead. Uh, That should inspire us all. Humility is the key here, as I always want to be keenly aware of what I don't know, what I have yet to accomplish, how far I have yet to go. Uh, That keeps us all moving forward, right? And the absence of humility stops us in our tracks because we think we've got it down. So great, great segment today, bringing all of these things together. You know, Toto had this song that I remember from years ago called Better World. So what are we doing outside of our world to make it a better world for everything going on around us? And that, again, that's what I loved about Dr. Hoffman, about so many things outside of the operating room that he was working on, just continual improvement. And that's what we're all about here is taking these concepts that, that although they're applicable to medical device sales, they're applicable across the board. So what are we doing outside of that OR to just make things better at home and our relationships, our parental relationships, our uh, intra-work relationships, just all across the board, always straining for better and looking for opportunities to move the ball down the field. Thank you so much for listening. I am so thankful for every one of you in this audience. Uh, Again, you're the best of the best. I look forward to next week, and I hope you have an awesome week this week. And as always... Be strong, be positive, be smart, and be safe.